Podglomerate original. Hey, podcast listeners. Are you planning holiday travel, dreaming of your next big adventure, or finally satisfying your wanderlust? If so, the next step might just be checking out Expedia's podcast, Out Travel the System. More than travel hacks, Out Travel the System breaks down travel-related stereotypes and showcases just how much there is to see and experience in the world. You'll hear from expert guests like Condé Nast's former creative director, Yolanda Edwards, and industry pioneer, Jessica Nabongo, who is the first black woman to visit all the countries in the world. However, and wherever you travel, follow Out Travel the System everywhere you listen to podcasts. Hey, Trailweight listeners. Before we start today's episode, I wanted to quickly tell you about another podcast, The Carbon Copy. Climate change can often feel like a far-off problem or tend to be siloed as a scientific story. But everything is a climate story. And that's where The Carbon Copy comes in. Hosted by climate reporter Stephen Lacey, The Carbon Copy covers climate change by connecting it to the significant cultural, economic, business, and tech trends that shape the world around us. Produced by Postscript Media and Canary Media, the carbon copy informs, enlightens, and sparks curiosity about how a changing climate affects our lives. From Russia's war on Ukraine to the housing crisis to decisions handed down from the Supreme Court, the carbon copy explores how climate change and the energy transition connect to today's biggest stories. To hear more, follow and subscribe to the carbon copy on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. In 2019, I tried my first attempt at backpacking and fell in love with it while hiking over 200 miles, spending an entire month traversing the Sierra Nevada mountains in the heart of California. And while I knew I wanted to tell a story about my quest to lose weight and hike a month-long trail, I didn't realize it would be a story of loss, learning, and growth. Trail weight took on a meeting different than I expected. I never thought it would lead to this. I'm Andrew Steven, and this is Trail Weight, a podcast about hiking outdoors and the lessons learned along the way. This season might feel a little different than season one. Still, in its differences, it feels like an emotional sequel exploring similar themes of how we see nature, use the environment, and what it actually means to carry the weight of being a responsible outdoors person. But like season one, it all starts with an idea of a hike. However, Californians have recently been ordered to stay inside because of the coronavirus outbreak, but they are permitted to take walks. For some, it is the only sense of normalcy amid this pandemic. As we head into a pandemic. hot weekend, a lot of families really, are adjusting really plans for the 4th of July. Many festivals getting outside and getting your blood. And this morning, we are conquering loneliness. Some people are doing just but that. But camping is one activity that is even it's more really, popular really than ever with health um, concerns. Getting outside very and getting high. your blood pumping is amazing for endorphins. Ideas change and plans stand still. But after a pause... I began the journey of planning another big adventure for the summer of 2021, hoping that vaccines, public health, and all appropriate precautions would create a safe enough environment to try my hand at another thru-hike. I eyed the Tahoe Rim Trail, an 170-mile-long trail that loops around the Lake Tahoe Basin from the mountains above. I made reservations, bought food, scheduled time off work, 
But days before our departure date, a nearby wildfire made my partner and I think twice before setting out in the backcountry. This morning, firefighters in South Lake Tahoe are the last line of defense between the massive Caldor fire and thousands of homes. Fire's been very volatile. Every time we think we're getting a foothold and getting some containment lines put in, it shows us that it's going to do what it wants. Hundreds of structures already destroyed, more than 30,000 others now under threat, with more than 50,000 residents under mandatory evacuation. When you evacuate, you realize how many things you left behind. Even if the fire itself hadn't crossed the trail's path, Thick clouds of smoke in our lungs didn't feel like the wise choice, especially during a pandemic that affects the respiratory system. We quickly adjusted our plans and were lucky enough to get a last-minute backcountry permit to hike the High Sierra Trail in Sequoia National Park, a shorter 50-mile journey through some of the same mountains we had hiked in 2019. Day one, we went from Crabtree Meadow to Bear Paw Meadow. However, we'd be walking west to east instead of south to north this time. It was a shorter trip, but it gave us a second chance to summit Mount Whitney, which we couldn't do two years prior. You can hear all about that in season one. Yeah. And even as we hiked through the Kern River Valley, we saw reminders of the Tahoe fire that detoured our trip and the wildfires burning throughout California. Yeah, and then there was, I mean, we walked through, there was a, a forest fire the year before, and we walked through, I don't know, four to five miles of that, which was its own kind of depressing eeriness. Yeah. But when we finally made it to Junction Meadow, it was like... A fire burned much of where we were currently hiking a couple of seasons before we got there. But this year, the fires were elsewhere. In 2021, California's wildfire season started early and burned hotter, thanks to an ongoing drought and historically low rainfall. The scale of the blaze marks an ominous start to California's wildfire season. The speed and intensity of it has made it an almost impossible battle for firefighters. Just last year, more than 2.5 million acres were burnt in nearly 9,000 fires. According to multiple sources, there were almost 300 fires as of January 2021, almost three times the number of fires at 20 times the size of the five-year average. California has experienced increasingly larger and deadlier wildfires in recent years as climate change fuels drier, more combustible conditions. Just last year, more than 2.5 million acres were burnt in nearly nine If you listened to season one, you'd be happy to know that we made it to the summit of Whitney. It's 3.46, and we are officially leaving Guitar Lake. Here we go. We're going up to Whitney. It's 4.30, and we're hiking in darkness aside from our headlamps. The moon, if it is up, is hidden behind a mountain. And we are traveling like ships in the night, following electronic north stars of the hikers ahead of us high up the mountain as their headlamps twinkle and glisten, illuminating 
a path forward. So where are we right now? Sorry. We are at the top of Mount Whitney. How's it feel? It feels so good. And while there's more story there to be told, perhaps for another time, even while high above the clouds, we could see evidence of nearby wildfires. Thankfully, though, our trip was relatively free of fire. But because of a small burn remaining near Whitney in the Inyo National Forest, some hikers who set out before us were worried they couldn't exit the typical way down Mount Whitney and decided to ration their food in case they had to extend their hike out of the backcountry. Congratulations. Congratulations. How do you feel? Mostly tired, but also proud. Yeah. This hike ended, and I returned home tired and grateful. Since the High Sierra Trail was much shorter than the thru-hike we originally planned, I realized I could potentially take more time off in a month for another backpacking trip. Another backpacking trip? Was I really going to try and quickly plan another hike? I remembered a remote corner of Sequoia National Park I had visited briefly one summer day on the way home from a week in the park's more popular areas. This is from a video Rocky and I recorded while first visiting the area in 2018. <laughs> running. I'm, I'm running to see the waterfall. Gotta run, gotta run. Because it's so pretty. <laughs> Ooh, branches, 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 branches. So many branches. This is gonna be worth it. Some guidebook or blog post I'd read referred to Mineral King as one of the Sierra's best-kept secrets. So we thought we'd find out for ourselves. Nestled in a clearing, almost hidden by giant trees upon arrival, Mineral King sits atop a single-lane, incredibly windy road. Freckled with sequoias that seemingly spring from nowhere, how the biggest trees in the world can sneak up on you is still a mystery to me, but they do. Once you get to the end of the road, you are rewarded with a view of granite peaks and white pine forests adorned with snowmelt streams. It feels like a postcard, but like if someone took a real postcard and said, make it look more unbelievable, more magical, more picturesque. It leaves you breathless and awestruck, like Yosemite's tunnel view, perhaps only because of its remoteness and lack of easy access is it less well known. When I was there the first time, I discovered two things. First, there were several trails and loops I wanted to hike in the future. And second, it almost became the location of a Walt Disney theme park. If you're looking for another podcast to listen to, check out Vanishing Postcards. Hosted by Evan Stern, Vanishing Postcards is all about being outside, on the open road, and seeing new places. In the latest season, Vanishing Postcards invites listeners to drive cross-country on Route 66 and experience everything from a dance in Tulsa 
to an eating contest in the Texas Panhandle, to a morning on the Santa Monica Pier. Vanishing Postcards explores how this iconic road's past, present, and future are revealed through the stories of the people and places on Route 66 today. If you're looking for an episode to try, check out Postcards from the Mother Road, The Roots of Route 66, and hear all about how the legend of Route 66, which spans almost 7,000 miles, came to be. You can join their road trip by following Vanishing Postcards wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, BetterHelp. When learning how to backpack, one of my first purchases was a small, portable butane stove. And the first thing I saw when I opened the box was a small folded up set of instructions. After a quick read, I turned it on and it worked without a problem. Unfortunately, not everything comes with a set of instructions. And life is one of those things without a user manual. And most of it isn't problem free. So when life's not working, it's normal to feel stuck, lost, and unsure of how to proceed. We may not have an instruction booklet for life, but thankfully there are people trained to help us navigate a career change, work through relationship issues, and help us approach feelings of stress, anger, or anxiety. I've personally found therapy to be beneficial in talking through complex issues, processing pain, learning productive skills, and so much more. And BetterHelp has connected more than 3 million people with the help they need. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try or are having trouble finding the right help, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, and affordable. And, as the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists, all available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. You can easily switch to a new therapist anytime if things aren't clicking. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms. No traffic. No endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com wait. That's Better, H-E-L-P, dot com slash W-E-I-G-H-T. When I first visited Mineral King, I found a small sign that led me to the story I'm about to tell you. It's a story that questions what it means to be an environmentalist. A story of changing views and shifting opinions. It's a story about the ways we recreate outdoors and the ways we appreciate nature. It's a story that leads me to places I never thought I'd go, to thoughts I never imagined I'd have, and adventures I was unprepared for. And it all starts with a lesser-known piece of Walt Disney's past. Today in the Walt Disney Studios in Hollywood... There is coming into being something entirely new in entertainment. A motion picture called Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. The first full-length feature animated production in cinema history. For the past two years in the bustling studio buildings, home of Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, and the Three Little Pigs, their creator, Walt Disney, and his staff of 600 artists have been working intensively on the first feature which will be released in January. In 1931, Walt Disney's doctor suggested he start exercising more to help relieve some of the stress that comes with building an animation and later theme park empire. Disney tried all the usuals a wealthy person in the 30s would do. Golf, badminton, horseback riding. But while vacationing in Yosemite National Park, he fell in love with winter sports. <clears throat> Skiing is fast becoming the most popular of all winter sports. 
And small wonder, for there is no finer conquest than that of a mountain clad in its glorious winter mantle of glittering white. The Los Angeles Herald Examiner wrote in January 1935, Movie producer Walt Disney and his wife found the winter sports in Yosemite decidingly to their liking. It was the Disney family's first experience with winter sports, and they were learning to figure skate before they left Yosemite Valley. Here, Disney learned to ski with Austrian champion Hans Scroll at Scroll's Ski School at Badger Pass. Disney left Yosemite with a love of skiing and a new friend in Hans Scroll. A couple years later, when Schroll was looking to build his own ski resort, he looked to Disney for an investment. As a result, Disney became one of the early stockholders of Sugar Bowl Resort. An interesting side note, one of the features of Sugar Bowl Resort was its chairlift, a now ubiquitous feature for most ski runs. In 1939, this was the first chairlift in California and became an attraction in and of itself. For several Christmases, the Disney family would vacation at Sugar Bowl, eventually leading to an unfinished documentary about the resort, produced by Walt Disney. These are all really like passion projects or just fun little things for the ultra-wealthy to do. This is Jesse Rittner. Walt Disney builds the first lift at Sugar Bowl. Avril Harriman, who was a railroad tycoon, is who builds Sun Valley. Stowe is created by a group of investors off Wall Street, right? It's just this thing that, like, ultra-wealthy people do. He's a historian. A historian coming out of UT Austin, uh, where I'm working on a PhD on the history of skiing and specifically snowmaking environment and the relationship between technology environment and ski corporations. Throughout the 1940s and 50s, Sugar Bowl grew in popularity, attracting other celebrities like Errol Flynn and Marilyn Monroe. That's what these were. I mean, they were clubs almost. And you see that especially in places like Sugar Bowl, which was really, they got the investment by having people pay something like $200 per vacation lot. And if you had that, you could use the lodge and you could use the chairlift and you could come for day skiing. But it was kind of like a golf club for skiing. One night, Disney apparently even filled in as bartender. According to John Wiley, Sugar Bowl's first winter sports director, there was no television in those days, so he tended bar almost incognito for about two hours. And it was this place that the rich and famous of California, especially the elite of Los Angeles, like Walt Disney, like Charlie Chaplin, these other people would go on the weekends and they'd own their weekend houses. And it was designed to be built in a specific style so that it all looks like a coherent, really European village. Disney would go on to sponsor events like Disney Junior Challenge and the Goofy Racers for Children, and ski runs were named after him and exist to this day, like Disney Nose, Disney Meadow, Donald Duck. When one new lift replaced the old chairlift, it was renamed the Disney Express. This will eventually sort of blow up into the model of ski areas, right? In a weird way, Sugar Bowl is really an example of what places like Vail and Snowmass, wherever, right? Park City, these are all examples of some of these sort of built and imagined landscapes that become what we know as ski areas. 
So you, you mentioned sort of that these were places for the rich, the, you know, country clubs of the mountains. Like what did like the, in the thirties and forties, uh, what did people think of skiing? Was it really just seen as like this wealthy hobby or did it have any of sort of this like outdoors person, whatever, hunter, hiker, fisher, uh, side of it? Cause I know like the Sierra club would, I mean, that was more cross country skiing trips. They would take people on and stuff like that. Sort of how did the public view skiing and, and the start of these resorts? Yeah, so there's sort of two sides, the history of skiing. And you have the the ultra-wealthy, not quite as ultra-wealthy as we mean today when we say that, um, but for the time, people who are truly above and beyond. So you have the people going to these resorts, even a lot of the people in the Sierra Club who are pretty wealthy, largely live in cities, um, starting to push into suburbs a little bit, although that really comes into prevalence after World War II in a more real way. But right by these mountains, you often have a more working or middle-class group of skiers as well. So people in towns like Steamboat, Aspen, in Lake Placid or Stowe, these towns that pre-existed, the ski resorts there often skied and had been skiing since the mining days in the 1890s or even before in you know California starting in the 1860s it was a mode of transportation and there were competitions that were community building spaces and so you certainly have that aspect of skiing and that's when you see these really small one rope toe short hills pop up you see that um with places like Berthoud Pass which was a little bit more of a movement by middle and upper middle class people in Denver than the ultra wealthy, right? I mean, nobody was going to Denver. You couldn't get there other than by train. It was cold and in the plains and you had to go over Mm -hmm. a lot of plains to get there from the east and some big mountains to get there from the west. But when you talk about resorts, it's really the really wealthy. The thing is, is that the really wealthy were by and large the people we would now think of as the hikers, the alpinists, the mountaineers, the people who wanted to get out into the wilderness. These were the people who had the money, who had the access, who had the time. And it was really, it was really small group of people. I mean, maybe a quarter million people in the United States skied before World War II. If that, there aren't really any good statistics on it, frankly, but it's very few people. And so these people are much more part of this preservation and conservation movement that starts in the late 1800s with people like John Muir or Gifford Pinchot, who is the first head of the Forest Service, than they are what we might think of as the modern ideal of the ski bum, right? Or the working class person who goes, I'm going to put off real life. I'm going to put off the city. I, I'm willing to sacrifice all of these other creature comforts to go and do this thing yeah. I love, right? Or like the gap year backpacker type hiker trash aesthetic either. Right. There were those people, but they're really two different aspects. And those people were pretty invisible, except to each other and to the elite who they taught to ski. Long before X Games, Ultralight, Ski Bum, Hiker Trash, skiing was as much about status as anything. Perhaps part of the reason skiing hadn't attracted a larger mass was that skiing wasn't really something that people thought about much. Sure, it can still be prohibitively expensive, has a relatively small season, and isn't as popular as other mainstream sports. But skiing wasn't ever really seen or talked about unless you already were a skier. 
For it to get to where it is today, someone had to showcase skiing to a larger audience. Someone with the newfound love of the sport and maybe a film studio and distribution channel already in place. Someone like Disney. And now, our feature presentation. Disney's experiences at Sugar Bowl inspired the popular Goofy cartoon, The Art of Skiing. Yeah, I mean, like, that's this classic moment of everyone is watching Walt Disney's cartoons. Everyone loves Goofy creating this, you know, uh, national visibility for skiing. Skiing, pronounced is a sport that appeals especially to the rugged, wide-awake, out-of-doors individual. <clears throat> who leaps from his bed at sunup in joyous anticipation to the thrills that lie in store for him. The first essential is the correct there wasn't really anything representing ski culture in movie form before. Yes, this was animated, but it showed the world of skiing to a much wider audience. I mean, I think it's even Sugar Bowl in the cartoon. It's like a it, there's a sign yeah. that says Sugar Bowl on it. Yeah, it's specifically his place, right? And it, it had a huge impact. It's not the only place we see that. I mean, there's people skiing increasingly and in movies, wealthy people are going on vacation to great places. The difference in some ways in Walt Disney's Goofy is that it's in America rather than in the Alps, right? Mm -hmm. It's an American. Walt Disney is American. He is an ideal American. He has become this favored child uh, in the American psyche. And so there's a lot of impact when he puts this out there. And it's part of a bigger goal for him. I mean, Walt Disney was a really active member of the Sierra Club. Walt Disney was the first person to create nature documentaries, and he created seven or eight or nine of them. And so he really had a love for the outdoors that he was trying to share with the American people. And he was a big part of creating what after World War II especially would become this move towards the outdoors and the view of the outdoors as something people needed to experience and dive into and, and love. For the first attempt, choose a gentle slope. We start with a joyous galander stroke, or hop, and we are up. Always keep the eyes to the front, because objects sometimes appear with amazing suddenness. Throughout the cartoon, Goofy struggles to ski, trips, falls, and gets all twisted up. This, too, was seemingly inspired by Disney's life experiences. Skiing is really quite simple once you get the hang of it. His daughter, Diane, once said, He never skied well, and we have funny home movies of him trying. The artists at the studio used some of that as an inspiration for the Goofy animated short. Even the iconic yodel that became Goofy's signature sound was a recording of Han Schroll himself. In Rob Cott's words, Sugar Bowl's chief executive at the time, he said, One evening Hans was telling some of us about that trip down to Burbank in the late 1930s to see if Walt Disney wanted to invest in the resort. Disney and Hans got to chatting about Austria and yodeling, which Disney liked. So Hans yodeled for him. Disney was greatly impressed and called in his sound guys to record Hans. 
That's what ended up in the Disney cartoons, and Hans always said, You know what? I was never paid a dime for that. Walt Disney had a way of taking things he loved and making his own versions of them. Whether it was his friend's ski resort to inspire a cartoon, or his childhood town as inspiration for Main Street in Disneyland. I don't know about you, but when I think about Disneyland and Walt Disney, I don't picture him as an environmentalist. The studio and theme park empire that Disney has become seems, at worst, antithetical to nature. A symbol of corporate greed, the built world, and unnecessary abundance. And at best, a neutral force that attempts to do good to justify any harm it may have caused. But 50 years ago, both Disney and the world had different views on the environment. Some radical for the time, and some problematic by today's standards. Regardless, Disney saw himself as an environmentalist. Disney's love of skiing eventually took him to the alpine resort town of Zermatt, Switzerland. Here, Disney would find inspiration for Disneyland and future theme parks. Disney loved his time in Zermatt because the entire city is car-free to prevent air pollution that might obscure the Alps' views. Visitors arrive in Zermatt by train, and local vehicles are entirely electric. Disney latched onto this idea both because of his love of trains and also because he hated how cars and roads could ruin a view. But these transit ideas weren't the only concepts he brought home with him. He also brought the Alps to Southern California, building a model of the Matterhorn in the center of Disneyland. Zermatt's pollution-free experience allowed pristine views of the Matterhorn from almost anywhere in the city. So why not also have pristine views of this in Anaheim, California? And why not build a roller coaster inside? Walt Disney, perhaps like me and Rocky, also took inspiration from Lake Tahoe. No, Disney didn't plan a backpacking trip that was postponed because of fire. He instead, in Tahoe, found a place to try out some ski park ideas he gleamed from Sugar Bowl, Zermatt, and even Disneyland. I mean, so the 1960 Olympics to me are so interesting more because of snow and technology as they relate to these Olympics. And it's just a, I, I don't know if you've heard this story or not, but it's a crazy story. I mean, in 1960, the Winter Olympics took place just outside Tahoe at the currently named Palisades Tahoe Ski Resort. The Winter Olympics Organizing Committee, in an attempt to present the perfect Winter Olympics, hired Walt Disney to produce the opening and closing ceremonies and entertainment for the athletes. But the Organizing Committee didn't stop there. Worried there might not be enough snow, 
They hired people to cloud seed and then worried about the impact of too much snow in the environment, hired avalanche scientists to help protect against possible avalanches. Both cloud seeding and avalanche control were intimate relationships for them. For me, it's just this like perfect story of where nature and environment and consumerism and like identity as skier converge in this just like one fascinating story. On the afternoon of the big day that was to justify more than four years of planning, it looked as if the battle still hadn't been won. 18,000 spectators from all over the world wonder if they're glad they came. Still, the eighth Olympic Winter Games are about to begin. Then the snow stops, the sky clears. The ceremonies proceed to the point where the audience and the best athletes from 31 nations wait for the sacred flame. As a budding environmentalist, as well as a proven entertainer, Disney seized the opportunity to put his stamp on the Winter Games as well. And the eighth Olympic Winter Games have come to America. For 10 more days, while the flame in the snow burns day and night, and wherever it burns, and for as long as it burns, it lights the way. According to Disney historian Aaron Goldberg in an SF Gate article, Disney completely changed the modern day Olympics. The pomp and circumstance we see today was 100% thanks to him. In fact, a lot of what you see in Disneyland trickled down into the Winter Olympics. Disney's Olympics were a huge hit and received high praise. Still today, much of what we think about as Olympics was shaped by Disney and his team of Imagineers. Slowly, Disney's reach grew from entertainment to sports and athletics, and from the built world to the natural world. Where would his legacy stop? How would Disney affect our views of nature? At the 1960 Winter Olympics, Disney befriended Willie Schaefer, a Bavarian ski expert. Schaefer seemingly became the final piece of the puzzle. Along with Disney's experiences at Sugar Bowl, Zermatt, Disneyland, and the Olympics, he was now ready to build his very own ski park, a Disneyland in the mountains. So, Schaefer and Disney settled on a small valley in a remote corner of the Sierra Nevada mountains, five hours north of Disneyland, the site of an old failed mining town called Mineral King. When Walt Disney first saw Mineral King, he said, I thought it was one of the most beautiful spots I'd ever seen. So, naturally, I wanted to see just how beautiful it actually is. I mean, I'd seen it briefly, but now I wanted to really see it. And so, with that in mind, I set out to backpack in Mineral King to see what was so special about this place that captured Walt Disney's imagination. Just got like three texts. The national forests in California have all been closed as a preventative measure because of the massive amount of wildfires we're having this year. Sequoia National Park with the desperate efforts to contain the fast spreading blaze as new evacuation warnings are issued. 
Yeah, that's right. Access to all entrances to Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Park are now closed to the public. So this is the furthest point that we have access to. As fires rage, not just here, but all over the state of California, I didn't know what to do. Next time on Trailway. When you talk about fires, one of the striking statistics, 30% of fires starting on the U.S. Forest Service lands, 30% were caused by campfire. It's one of those really difficult balancing acts, right? Because on the one hand, you can say, yes, having more people in, in these spaces adds new risk, both to them and to the landscapes. But on the other hand, we also know that that's what cultivates appreciation and love of spaces that we are trying to protect. And so in some ways, I think it's essential to make sure that people, even those who maybe never thought about going camping, have some sort of access to these really incredible, striking, cherished places that we love. Special thanks to Jesse Rittner. You can see more of his work at jesserittner.com. Trailweight is produced and written by Andrew Steven. Our story producer is Monty Montepar. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Podglomerate. For transcripts and more, visit trailweight.co or follow us online at trailweight on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. Conglomerate Original.